Well, hello, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast. I am John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to share with you stories that empower you to do, to be, to achieve, and to impact more through your life. Maybe more simply said, I'm fired up to share with you stories that help you live inspired. After today's episode, I hope you share with your friends, your family, your colleagues, your letter carrier, your dog walker, that stranger seated next to you on the bus ride, that lady working out right next to you, the guy checking out in front of you. In other words, share with everyone that you're listening and that you are subscribing to the Live Inspired podcast. Together as a Live Inspired community, we can change the world. And now, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. For a long time, books have influenced me. I know that sounds like an odd thing to say, but I wasn't into reading in grade school. I know that's going to shock and bother some of the teachers out there, but this is just my truth. I struggled academically. I struggled reading in grade school. That struggle continued in middle school, throughout high school, and even into college and beyond. It wasn't until about age 28 that I started opting into the gift, and it is a gift, of actively reading of reading not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you can then have something on your bookshelf to show to others, but because you know that in something that you may read, it's going to influence the way you show up, the way you impact, the way you grow, and the way you touch those around you in your life. And one of the great authors who has influenced me is a guy named Patrick Lincioni. Pat is the founders of The Table Group. He's part of a pioneer organization that has changed businesses culturally. It's an incredible organization. Pat Lencioni is the author of 11 best-selling books. He has sold more than 6 million copies. It's been translated into more than 30 languages around the world. He owes me because I personally bought 11 of those copies. Each of the books sit at my home. We're going to be talking during this episode today about some of those books, but we're going to be painting outside the lines. Pat is such a polished author and speaker that I wanted to get him during this conversation in a place that he seldom spends his time in front of large audiences. I want him to talk about his upbringing. I want him to talk about his marriage. I wanted him to talk about his experience parenting, some of the mistakes that he made, some of the lessons that he's learned, and what it means for us, the listeners today. I encourage you to check out the books, but you're going to love checking out this podcast. It's with a guy that I consider a friend, a mentor, a guide, and someone that we all can learn an awful lot about leadership, courageous conversations, and life from. I encourage you right now to open up your journals, open wide your minds and your heart as I get to bring you my friend, his name, Pat Lencioni. Pat, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. It's great to be with you, John, and I mean that. I'm really excited. I wish I were there in person with you, but it's so fun to be talking to you. I've been bragging on some of the work that you've done, some of the impact that you've had on me. For the listeners who somehow missed the intro and they have not somehow heard your name, read your books, learned about your work, talk about The Table Group. What what kind of work do you do there? 
we don't know what to call ourselves anymore. We used to be a management consulting firm, but we really come up with ideas now. And we have management consultants around the world that, that implement them. And we uh, do a lot of media to kind of get the word out. Essentially, we're a company that's dedicated to helping organizations get healthy and helping employees feel fulfilled in their work. It, it's really about the workplace. Mm-hmm. And we realize that if companies are political and dysfunctional and un healthy and unsuccessful, people aren't going to love working there. So we help CEOs build better companies, but we do it with the employee in mind, knowing that human beings should go to work and come home feeling better about themselves and about their life than they would have if they weren't there. Pat, the the name, the table group, talk about the Genesis story, the origin story behind that. So when we started the company, I I certainly wasn't going to name it after me because we didn't know exactly where it was headed and that wasn't something I wanted to do. And we said, let's name it something that, that is easy to remember. And, and, and here's the real thing, though. We believe that the table remains, even today, the most powerful piece of equipment in the world. Mm. More than any technology, people sitting down around a table and getting things done. And, and I will tell you this, John, too, because I'm a believer. I'm a, a follower of Jesus Catholic one like you. And, and I thought about, you know, the table that Jesus sat around at the last supper too. And so the table is the most powerful tool we have sitting down in a meeting and having difficult conversations and working through things. We just said the table group, that's what we do. We sit down with executives and we get things done. And we think that, um, we want to make it simple and sturdy and useful. It's ironic you say that because the majority of my friends in positions of leadership view the table as a wall in their day. They, they, they view the meetings yeah. that they have as like, oh, it's pulling me away from the work I, I want to be doing. So t- talk about that disconnect between this incredible tool called the table, called the meeting, called that room where we connect, and uh, the great work that we get to do, whether it's as a mother, as a nurse, as a CEO, or somewhere in between. Right. Well, the, the idea here is that people sitting down and looking at each other and working together on something. I suppose the table is that common thing, whether the food is sitting there or whether there's somebody we're operating on in the operating room table, or they were sitting at a meeting, we're getting things done. Now you're right though, people will look at tables as like, ah, especially with meetings. One of the things we do a lot of around here is help people understand that meetings are not the problem. Bad meetings are the problem. And and so many executives say, man, if I didn't have to go to meetings, I'd like my job. Mm -hmm. And we're like, no, 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 no. Your meetings are the most important work you do. That's where you and your colleagues, who I hope you have some genuine love for, are trying to solve important problems. It's where moms and dads and kids sit down and, and, and work things out. And when you're in a company and you do that and you hate doing it and you say, I hate meetings, you might as well be saying, I hate my job. It would be like a baseball pitcher saying, I hate games and practice. <laughs> it would be like a surgeon saying, I hate operating on people. Or a teacher saying, I hate being in the classroom. <laughs> When an executive says, I hate meetings, it's like, well, you realize that's probably the most important part of your job. So we need to change that. Mm. I'm going to pull back from where we are right now and talk about some of the earliest meetings you had, some of the uh, tables that you sat around growing up. I think, oh, yeah. Pat, we become like like trees in life. And if you, you look at a tree, there's these inner rings. And the inner rings in the early stages inform who the tree becomes in time. I'm curious, man, where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a kid? So I grew up in, in a little part of Oklahoma called Bakersfield, California. <laughs> so it's a, it's a town in California that is far more like Oklahoma That's really funny, than it is man. like the rest of California. <laughs> yeah. Everybody would say, you're it, from California? And I was like, no, 
Bakersfield is Oklahoma. It's an I, I love it. I think it's a great town. So you grew up in Bakersfield. I didn't know that. Yeah, country music, oil derricks, yeah. arms, and things like that. Now, by the time I was raised, it was largely a big sprawling suburb. Not a suburb because it's it's its own town. But I didn't grow up on a farm. My mom did, and her dad worked in an oil field. But you know, by the time I grew up there, it wasn't all ag and oil and country music. Mm-hmm. And I, ironically, I hated country music until I got married, and my wife turned me on to it later. But the point is, I grew up in a place in California that was not very California-like. It was very it was a good place to grow up in many ways. I think it's struggling a little bit now, but it's uh, it was good for family. And I grew up to in a family with a brother and a sister, and my parents didn't go to college. My dad had a job. My mom stayed home. We didn't have a heck of a lot of money. We went to the same place on vacation every year to Pismo Beach for a week. Hmm. And uh, that we had a pretty simple upbringing, and it was it was blessed in many ways. Now, I will tell you, I've come to realize lately in my life that that – I had wounds that I'd never realized from being a kid, and we all do. And uh, it's a real blessing to be able to go back and explore those and understand how they impact us now. And I'm 54 years old now, and I'm learning things about myself that I never realized. And it's making my marriage today better. I'm, I'm a better parent as a result of it, and it's been a real blessing. So my wife always hates when I do this in public. When someone throws you a piece of bait like that, and then you follow it down the path, and you actually go with it, so you you threw it out there. Now we're going to get on the path. Sure. You talk talk about the the childhood wounds. Give me an example. What what was something that you went through that changed you? You didn't even recognize that it changed you. Now looking back on it, you realize, well, man, that's a wound. I have to go back and heal it, redeem it. Well, and you know, I'd be crazy if I didn't say and and look at your life and and the very real wounds that you had. And what's amazing about that is, and that's your story, and it's so powerful. And I, when I heard you say it, I thought, this is, this is so amazing. And so I, wanna, I want everybody in the world to know your story and what you learned from it. Because when we work through our wounds, you know, God heals us stronger than we were before. Mm-hmm. And you're a testament to that. But sometimes we have these little wounds that we didn't even realize we had, and they become our story. And when I was a kid, for, for whatever reason— you know, and my parents had their own wounds and their own stories. I realized at a pretty early age that nobody was really completely aware of who I was and what was going on for me. Mm. And it wasn't any overt cruelty. My parents were wonderful people who had their own challenges. But really early on, I was kind of like, I'm on my own here. I got to figure this out for myself. And as a result of that, you know, you tell yourself lies like, okay, nobody else is going to help me. I got to do it on my own. And I vow never to need anybody and to be perfect. I have to be perfect. Are you an oldest child? I'm not, but I kind of was parentified and functioned like that. And so I grew up torturing myself to be perfect most of my life. Wow. And whether that was sports, whether that was school, whether that was relationships and work and everything like that. And that's a real you know, there's people that will say, well, that's not a very big problem. Look, it's turned out pretty good for you. And it's like, it was, it was pretty hard <laughs> because I worried all the time. What, I was constantly worried. What is the hardest thing about being a perfectionist? That you never rest. <laughs> you never have peace. You never feel like you're loved for who you are. You feel like your love is totally contingent on your performance. And, and you know, you got to look at Tiger Woods and you, you, you figure there's, that's got to be in there. There's so many athletes who are so successful but never seem to rest probably feel like if they rest or if they're not perfect, they're going to lose the love they, they need. Well, man, I heard you in a separate interview talk about Tom Brady and all the Super Bowl champs and the, the beautiful kids, the gorgeous wife, the tons of cash. And then you mentioned something that he said. Do you remember what he said yeah, recently in an they interview? Yeah, interviewed him on sixty Minutes. In fact, I was just thinking about him when you, when you said that. 
they interviewed him on 60 Minutes. They said, man, what's it like to be this rich and famous and successful and the wife and the kid, you know? And he said, you know, I got to tell you, I feel like I'm missing something still. There's something more. And of course, as a believer, I've come to realize that if I have the love of Christ in my heart and I know he loves me, I'm okay no matter what. And if I don't, no matter how much I accumulate in my life, it's not going to satisfy. I hit the wall about 10 years ago. Everything was going right for me in my life. And I, was, I knew that there was something wrong. And so I prayed. I went to mass one day and after communion, I prayed that God would help me break through. And I knew that it was about humility. Mm-hmm. I needed to detach from my identity in terms of my accomplishments. And I felt him say, Pat, this is going to be really hard for you. And I went through a really dark night that lasted a couple years. And I got stripped back to, and I prayed for it. I was like, I still want to do it. And I got stripped down to nothing. Now, luckily it didn't involve anything, any harm to my wife or my kids. I didn't take any drugs or use alcohol or cheat on my wife or do anything that would hurt them. But God showed me what emptiness was like without him and allowed me to kind of rebuild myself. And I'm still doing it. And knowing that, hey, I'm loved no matter what my performance is. And if I make a mistake or if I follow my face or if my wife is mad at me or my kids are mad at me, I can still recover from that and be loved. And so that's kind of what I've been going through. And by the way, I should tell you, there is a book I read, and I'll send it to you, John. I wish I could send it to all your listeners. It's called Be Healed. Be Healed. And it's by a guy named Bob Schutz. And it is the most profound. It is a game changer. It's a life changer. And he just talks about how we need to go back and understand you know, where we might have gotten broken and there's ways to overcome that. And life is so much better when we do. So it's probably had the biggest impact on me than any book I've ever read. So this is certainly something that has inspired and informed your life today. Looking back in the early days, was there one teacher or leader or Cub Scout master or grandparent who uh, kind of cast a light forward and showed you what you could do in your life? Yes, there was. And there was a number of them. But there was a guy named Joel Mena, and uh, Joel was, he was only 22 when I met him, but I thought he was an adult because I was 17, <laughs> 16, and he took, he really cared about, he, he saw something in me, and I, I played sports, and I was good in sports and stuff, but he was interested in me as a person. He became like, well, like a brother. Do me a like favor, a t- tell me what that means. So uh, most of us would assume, well, if he cared about your sports, or he cared about you academically, he cares about you, Pat. But tell me the difference in your mind between caring about someone academically, achievement-wise, sports, versus caring about them at the human level, the heart side. You know, I think what it is, is like he just delighted in who I was, you could tell. He liked to talk to me. And even when we disagreed, we could even get mad at each other and enjoy it. And here was a guy five years older than me, but I thought he was like 50 years older than me. And, and yet he saw something in me and he treated me like, like I had value beyond what I did. He was the track coach, and by my senior year, he convinced me to go out for cross-country and not to play football. I was tiny. And he and I became great friends, and, and I, I remember he just really encouraged me to he, – he talked to me about girlfriends, and he gave me advice about stuff, and it was just a different kind of relationship than anything I'd ever had. And what was amazing is – so I, when I graduated from high school, two weeks before I went away to college, he was killed in a, in a car accident. Gosh. And it was like – it was the weirdest – experience to lose someone like that. And he was 23 when he died. So it was like, what? But in some ways he got held in, in, his, in, in time that he's frozen in time, that person who, who delighted in me and who I loved. So it, it kind of feels like he's just that same person now. Have you written about him before? You know, I haven't. I have not done a lot of 
autobiographical or personal writing. I think I'm going to start doing that as I get a little bit older. Since I started my company, I have been so busy. Right. And, and when I got out of college, I became a screenwriter for fun and I wrote some screenplays. And then I started my company and I started writing books. And I just haven't written for complete pleasure or, or self-discovery. And I keep saying I'm going to, but man, my life is, is full right now. One day I need to do that. One of my questions to you today was going to be around this idea of why don't you personalize these books? And I know they're they're from your heart. They're to the hearts of the reader. And yet I think of the 11, maybe 10 of them are fables. Yes. And they're not autobiographical. They're, they're fictional characters. It draws on my screenwriting. The only book that's slightly autobiographical is I wrote one for families called The Three Big Questions for a Frantic Family. It is prob- it's by far the least bestseller I've, I've had and the most used in terms of I, people come up to me and say, it's changed our lives. Yeah. But when we published it, the publisher sold it in the parenting section rather than the business section. And so it was sitting next to books about breastfeeding and how to get your kids <laughs> to go to a, a good school. And, and it really was supposed to be a book for parents who are accustomed to applying business principles in, at work, but they weren't applying any of them to the home. And so it's really, and so I don't think there's an, another book that people like more than that one that I've written, but people aren't as used to buying books about family as they are about work, so. Well, so, since you brought it up, and I actually <laughs> love that book, I, you know, I'm a big fan. I think your work is phenomenal. That's probably my favorite book that you've written. And so, uh, yeah, th- there are See three- that? There it is right there. Well, you and the other 400 people that have read that book would say that. <laughs> because most of us go to meetings. We think we're going to go to meetings in order to increase top line revenue, bottom line profitability, employee engagement, pick, pick the, the topic of the day. But at the end of the day, we want better lives. And that includes work. Right. It includes profitability. It, it includes health and wellness and all this stuff. And, and massively, it includes wellness and fullness at home. And that oh. book, you just come at it hardcore into the family aspect. And so like, what, what kind of family are we going to be? Right. And be intentional. And, and and this came about because I think I went home one day and I said, gee, I said to my wife, gee, and I, I always exaggerate this because I'm not that cruel, but I think I said, gee, if my clients ran their businesses the way we run this family, they'd go out of business. Right. <laughs> and I, she was like, what do you mean? But, but the, what I was really thinking about, it was self-condemning as much as anything else. It was like, why am I so intentional at work? I have offsites. We get clear about our strategy, our values. And we, we have all these ways of, of making decisions. And then at, at home, I'd go home and I just react. And when somebody says, hey, do you want to sign your kid up for the underwater travel lacrosse team? I'm like, I don't know. Should I? And it's like, I have no plan to fall back on. I have no standards. My wife and I have not clarified this. So I said, why don't we write a book that's geared toward helping people apply the same principles of being intentional mm. at home so they can have peace in the same way that people do at work. And so it's written differently. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't make it as programmatic. I, I honestly think you know, 98% of the people who've read it have tried to implement it and said, this really works and it changed our lives. And so I love that book maybe more than any of the others. It's a shame that people will buy a book about teamwork at work, but not necessarily about how to apply principles of, of healthy organizations at home. But it's called the three big questions for a frantic family. If you look on the cover, the photograph is a picture of my house and a, and a minivan speeding by. And uh, I'd encourage people to get it. It really seems to make a big difference. That's my minivan. I recognize the back bumper, the, the dents all over it, and the kids <laughs> spit on the side. So that is my minivan <laughs> speeding by the Luncioni house. Patrick, the three questions. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guide you through these one by one by one. Oh, Here we go. Uh, what makes your family unique? 
It sounds so broad and lacks direction, but tell me why that question is so important. Right, and it's the equivalent of strategy in the business world. In other words, when you say to Southwest Airlines, hey, you're an airline, granted, but are you a generic airline? No, what makes you unique? And at Southwest, it's like, well, we have lower fares. That's what we do. We try to be on time. We turn our planes around quickly and we try to have fun with our customers. And those are the three things that whenever we make a decision, we go back to them and we say, does it allow us to live that way? Well, in our family, it should be the same thing. When somebody says, hey, do you want to do you want to try to ha- buy a cabin up in the Ozarks? And people would go, I don't know. Should we? Well, you should look at your family strategy. And for my wife and I, our family, what makes us unique is that we don't live near family. We, we're not near any um, extended family. So our friends and our church are like our family. Mm-hmm. So we're intentional about that. My wife decided she wants to be really, really involved in our kids, and, and I do too, in our kids' lives. So she's stayed home, and our kids are getting older now. She's starting to think about, about work again. But she sacrificed her career for the kids, and I sacrificed a lot of the opportunity I had in order to coach their teams and be home with them. So I don't travel internationally very much, and I'm really, I really made plans to do that. So the second one is we're going to be really involved in our kids' lives. And we're going to try to center our lives around our faith. And so we try to make that a big part of how we live. So those are just our three things. And so when somebody says, hey, do you want to do this activity? Or do you feel like doing this? Or should you, we buy a house at the lake? Mm-hmm. We have to ask ourselves, how does that fit within who we are as a family? And does that make sense? Other families have totally different value, uh, totally different strategies. Would you suggest the families go through this as a couple or yes. with the kids seated around the table with them? If the kids are old enough, I think it's fabulous to do as a, as a family. And it's not a democracy because democracy is a terrible way to, way to run a company or a family because the parents are in charge. But if they can feed into this and they're old enough, that's great. Because and, and for the parents to say, like, because one of the other questions we have to ask ourselves is, what are our family values? So you, you did one, like, what makes us unique? Mm-hmm. And so that's strategy and values. And, and Laura and I said, what are, we went to dinner one night, our kids were young, and we said, what is it that we value that makes us different than other families? We really went back to the question, why were we initially attracted to each other? What was it that I admired about you, Laura? that you happen to admire about me, and that's probably where our values are. And we, we said, you know, I said, what I loved about you, Laura, is we were in college, and you were willing to stand up for what you thought was right, even if it wasn't popular. Mm. I remember hearing you go, well, I just don't think that's right, and thinking, that's a woman I admire. And she said, well, that's how you are too. And I said, okay, I think that's one of our values. The other one was, my wife is, is super creative. Like, she, she writes, like, musicals. And that we haven't, she hasn't published yet. We invented a game um, right after we got, you know, and we were like, and I write fiction and she loves fiction as well and, and, and acting. And we said, we're creative. Mm-hmm. I love that you're creative, that we don't have to do things the way everybody else says we can be different. So creativity is one of our values. And then the other one was forgiveness is that we have to be able to get mad at each other, work through it and be stronger as a result. So we said, those are our three values. We are creative. We stand up for what's right and we forgive one another. Now, the problem is there's people listening to this going, those should be my values too. And it's like, no, 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 no. The other people in my office, one of the families here, she's, theirs is gratitude and humor and closeness to their core family. And those are wonderful things. And we, we're big into gratitude and all that, but that's not our core. The three things we want to say to our children is always stand up for what's right, forgive one another, 
and be creative. And every family should go through that process and say, what are we going to intentionally translate to our kids or transfer to our kids? So those are the things that go into what makes our family unique. Well, I believe the third leg of the stool is generally around how do you put this into action daily? So, so how do you as a family implement these values? Right. So if you come up, if you say, what do we believe to be true in our values and what makes us unique? Then the third thing is, so how are we going to make this something more than just an interesting conversation and a piece of paper that we put on a bookshelf and never use? You do two things. First of all, you have to actually have a meeting about it. And that is once a week for five minutes. And we, we skipped over one part of this, John, and that is that you also have to do the, the, so the first thing is what makes our family unique. And we just did those two things. The second one is what's our biggest priority right now as a family. Mm -hmm. This is the game changer. I think this is the game changer. And that is where my wife and I have to say, okay, we know that we have to keep our marriage going, keep the kids healthy, keep them in school, pay the bills, keep the house clean and our faith life. Those are permission to play. That's what we will always focus on. But what's particularly interesting in the next three months or six months or nine months in our family? What's the big one? And it might be transitioning our kids off to college. When they were graduating, we were like, for the next six months, our whole family has to be focused on how are we going to make this transition? In another area, it might be mom's been sick. How do we get her healthy? In another one, it might be how do we get our finances in order? In another one, and every family's got a different one, and anybody listening to this, I could ask them, what's the single biggest priority in your family that three months from now you want it to be better? Mm. Once you know what that is, like let me tell you ours. Laura and I, years ago, we had three children, and we found out we were pregnant with our fourth. We were so thankful to God, but we were also panicking because we're not very organized, John. <laughs> and and you know, the I've seen that your Christmas card picture, and life doesn't always look like that. <laughs> and for my wife and it I, it does with it Photoshop, rarely, man. It's fine. <laughs> so my wife and I were like, "What are we going to do? We're barely getting by with three kids. What are we going to do?" So our theme, our, our our rallying cry, our priority was prepare our family for baby number four. That was the biggest priority for the next five months until that baby's born. We have to be preparing our family. We wanted to do other things too. But we said, those all have to go on hold until we know that we're ready for baby number four. But what did that mean to be ready for baby number four? Well, it meant, first of all, we had to get the twins who are now in college. They were seven years old at the time. We have to get them to be more self-sufficient. They have to learn to make their lunch, get in the shower without us telling them, and get their homework together without us being staring over their shoulder. Mm. So we had to increase their self-sufficiency. That was category number one. The next one was we had a two-and-a-half-year-old, Casey, and we needed to increase his discipline, you know? So we were like, Casey, get out of our bed, get out of those diapers, life is over as you know it. <laughs> you know? I think he was actually three. And so we had to increase Casey's discipline, our third child. Then we said, we, had to, we have to finish this remodel that we were doing, we have to outsource a few services that we're not gonna be able to do, and we gotta clean out the garage. Mm -hmm. We had five things that defined for us, prepared for baby number four. So when our head hit the pillow at night, John, we could say, how are we doing? And once a week, we would look at that list and say, how are we doing on the, on the twins? They're yellow. They're doing a little better. How's Casey doing on the discipline? He's doing great. Out of our bed, out of the diapers. He's a, he's a green. How are we doing on the re kitchen remodel? That's a red. We're going to kill that guy if he doesn't finish that kitchen. <laughs> how are we doing on the other things? And every week, we would literally take five or ten minutes and just give ourselves a color mm. on the big things we had to do. Green, yellow, or red. 
what that allowed us to do is to focus our conversations on the things that mattered most. You know something else, John? I wanted to start going to Pilates. I looked at that list and I said, I don't have to go to Pilates right now. Right. I wanted to remodel the backyard. We don't need to remodel the backyard. That's not going to help us. So it allowed us to say no to things. It allowed us to know what to say yes to and to know when we went on a date what we really needed to talk about in order to move our family forward. Because without that, all we're doing is responding what's in the email inbox or what somebody is putting on our front step. And that's not intentional living, and that's a recipe for not having peace. So that was a long description. That's an awesome but description. But that second part of it is like every family should have a one rallying cry and then have four or five things underneath it, and they should look at it once a week and say how we're doing. Pat, you spend the majority of your professional life teaching organizations how to become more successful and how to engage with one another, how to have right. phenomenal meetings, courageous conversations. How would you then encourage your kids to define and then pursue their own version of success? This is a great question. I have 21-year-old twins in college. They're seniors. I have a 17-year-old in high school who's a junior, and I have an eighth grader who's 13. And we're, we're going through this right now. My twin boys, one of them just took his job. After he graduates, he'll have a job. The other one's looking for one right now. And I just had this conversation with my son and his girlfriend on the phone the other day. And literally two nights ago, it was, a, it was a divine, wonderful conversation, but he was stressed out about decisions he had to make in his life. And I finally said, Connor, failure is, fearing failure, because that's what he was doing, is not necessary. He goes, yeah, but look, you're a really successful dad. That, and I said, Connor, 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 I have failed. Before. No, you've never failed. Yeah. Connor, everyone fails. And if you think that you're not loved, even when you fail, and if you think you can't recover from failure, you're never going to be successful. So I realized because I'm kind of successful in my field, my kids have this vision of things that they're supposed to figure it out right away and, and, and conquer the world. And it's like, no, the failures are what defines us. The struggles are what define us. And we can be loved through those. So this idea of success in the world today is so, so broken. And I can tell you, John, I've learned this the hard way and I've met a lot of other people that have. When you get everything you think you wanted, that's usually when you break down because if you don't have the one thing that matters most, none of that is going to work. Mm. And, and you know, if you're a believer like I am, it's you got to know the love of God. And even if you're just seeking truth, it's like you want to be loved and love. And if you don't know that you're loved even when you're not on top of the world, I mean, I would not want my kids to feel like Tiger Woods. God bless that young man. And I hope he's gone through enough change, but I don't know if he has, but who cares if you win the Masters if you go home at night and your home is empty and there's no love there? And sometimes I think people would, well, I could, I could handle that. And it's like, no, man, be, a, be the world's best dad and husband and plumber and, and member of your community and be happy with who you are when you wake up every day. That really, really, truly is success. You and I shared the stage recently, and one of the quotes that you shared was something around the idea of, do you know what happens when you achieve importance and popularity, when that is your full pursuit? And you said it leads to misery. So when you achieve, when your whole pursuit in life is importance and popularity, it yep. leads to misery. Why is that? Yep. Well, again, it's because if what you're doing is defining yourself by that, and that's going to go away. I mean, at the very end of the day, in that dark, dark, dark moment at night, you're going to come to terms with the fact that this is all going to go away one day. And everybody, the poorest man in the, in the world and the wealthiest woman in the world are going to say to themselves, it could be man or woman either way, uh, one day I will die. And, and what then? And so if we haven't really come to terms with the fact that these, 
our status, our importance, our power, and all those other kind of, our wealth is, is not lasting, then that's going to haunt us in those dark moments. But when we go with hope and know that we're loved and we know there's something more important, then all the stuff in the world is not going to define us. I met Mike Singletary, the coach. He was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers. He was mm-hmm. a linebacker in the NFL. And I'm not sure where he is now, but he wore a cross around his neck. And people asked him, hey, when do, have you always been like that? And he said, oh, no, no, I, I started wearing this cross after we won the Super Bowl when I was with the Chicago Bears. They said, oh, really, why? He goes, because after we won the Super Bowl, I got really depressed because I thought, well, my life is perfect now, and I wasn't very happy. And I realized there's something missing here. For those that haven't, they're searching for truth and, and don't know where to find it yet, and God bless you. And, and for those that aren't happy and even though they think they have everything, or for those that haven't gotten what they want and they think that's going to make them happy, let me just please share with you a shortcut, and that is go to him because he is easy to get to. His yoke is easy and his burden is light, and that is a wonderful thing. Uh, when we work with clients, when we spend time with them ahead of time, I guide them through this long questionnaire and together we fill it up. We want to figure out what the challenges, the opportunities of the business are, of the meeting specifically, and of my role within it. And eventually as we go through this, we come across, I think it's question 13, what topics do you not want John to discuss with your team? Whether the team is six people in a boardroom or 6,000 in an arena, what do you not want him to discuss? And there are always two responses, always. Number one, politics, and number two, faith. Why why do you think it is that we are so apprehensive to talk about the very topics that you're bringing forward here as you talk about leadership, life, family, success? Why is it that we, we hold it at an arm's length and stiff arm it away? You know, it's such a, it's, it's an amazing thing. I think it's part of the brokenness of the world because what's more important than faith? And yet we've come to convince ourselves that it's appropriate to avoid that. So in other words, if you were to ask somebody of faith, like what's the most important part of your life? It's that, but I will never talk about it. And I think it's because we're broken and we think that we're doing it somehow to, to manipulate one another or control one another. Like when I talk to f- people, I know friends I have that are atheists or that have other faith lives, when I share it with them, it's out of love. And, and it's not out of like, I love you, and so I'm going to tell you why you're living a terrible life. It's like, <laughs> I want to share the peace I have in me, and I right. want to listen to you. Right. And, and even in politics, I, you know, I have to tell you, John, I was at a coffee shop near my office probably six months ago, and I was writing. Sometimes I like to go when I write a book. And I was sitting in there writing, and these ladies sat down. They're a little older than me, and they were talking politics. And let's just say they were very, very different than mine. And they were going on and on and on. And I was finding it a little bit annoying. And I, and I finally, I turned to them and I said, excuse me, ladies. And they said, yes. And I said, I couldn't help but overhear what you were talking about. And I just thought I might share with you a, a, a different point of view, but I would re- I'm really interested in yours. And we had this lovely conversation. It seemed so awkward at first. We hugged each other at the end and we were like, it's so good to talk to people with different points Amen. of view. But when we won't go there, we starve ourselves of bonds of love because when people love each other, they want to share with people new ways of thinking. Well, as you know, the the cancel culture is alive and well. And if you and I don't see eye to eye, then I'm never going to see you again. It's ridiculous. And the people that I love the most, you remember my friend that Joel, who loved me? Yes. He and I had different politics. We would argue, but he loved me and I loved him. And it was because we could argue and love each other afterward that we became so close. 
I married my wife, and she. I used to argue. I do argue. I'm Italian and Irish, John. So, uh, so <laughs> you know what cursed. that means. Double cursed. Yes, doomed. Right. Your my wife kids. is neither Italian nor Irish. Right. But she she became a convert very quickly, so she can argue better than me now, because converts are better than people born into things because they choose it. Well, <laughs> we would argue, and after we got married, my sister-in-law, my wife's little sister, married my roommate from San Francisco, a great guy. And they never argued. We would go to dinner and they always got along and Laura and I would argue. And we were always like, man, that's, what's wrong with us? Well, he ended up leaving her. They got divorced after a year and a half of marriage. And he went to counseling and he said, Pat, I realized that we had a bad marriage. I thought you had a bad marriage, Pat, because you and Laura argued. I realize now we had a bad marriage because we couldn't argue. We just couldn't do it. It's not to say that the, the best marriage in the world, they fight all the time. It's to say that if you have a strong relationship with somebody, you know it's only going to be made stronger by loving disagreements that repair. Because scar tissue heals better than tissue that's never been broken. That's and awesome. so this thing in the world that says never disagree with people and don't talk about politics or religion. So I will, I will share – I sat at a table with Ben Shapiro the other day. Mm-hmm. And I sat with him and his dad at, at this fundraiser for pro-life. I'm a supporter of pro-life because I love all people. I love women who have had abortions and I want them to heal and I love people that are considering it. I want them not to and I love all babies, whether they're considered to have a defect or not. I think they're all children of God. So I love all people, including those who I disagree with about this. So I was sitting there talking to them and it was just so amazing how interesting it was. They're, they're Orthodox Jews and they were sharing with me what it means to be their food, to be kosher. And we, we had this fabulous conversation with them. And one of the things that Ben Shapiro's dad told me is he says, people really like him because he can disagree with them but there's a joy in it, and, and there's something that draws people to that. And, and in our society, you know, I, my kids listen to him. Mm. And he doesn't agree with me on everything. He doesn't agree with them on everything. But they like talking about truth and looking at things from different standpoints. And I think we in our society have just eliminated that. And, and like, I think people should be able to talk about pro-life stuff and, and have compassion for people that disagree and help them arrive at a place where you think it might be better for them. So anyway, I say that to the people listening to this. If they're not pro-life, have a good conversation with somebody that is and love each other through it. And, and God has good things in store for us when we do that. So I'm going to share with you three of my favorite quotes from you, and you tell me uh, what, what this means. Okay. Failing to hold someone accountable, Pat, is ultimately an act of selfishness. Yes. And I'll even go further. I think it's an act of cruelty. So if you see somebody at work or in your family, and I learned it by my family, who, who's doing something that's not going to be good for them. It's not good for their family or for themselves, or it's not good for their team or their, their company. If you're their manager or their peer and you care about them, and I tell CEOs this, I hope you love the people that work for you, even if you don't always like them. But if you love someone, you, you must let them know what they need to do to improve. You must help them get better. Mm. And if you don't, you are leaving them to suffer. And they will never say to you later, thank you for not telling me what I needed to hear. I I suffered for it later in my life, but at least you spared me for that five minutes of telling me. And I realized this with my own kids. You know, I'm an ENFP in the Myers-Briggs, John. And so I really like my kids happy. And I don't enjoy correcting them because it makes them sad, (laughs) which is silly. But I know that I have to do that with them, and I do it because I love them. Well, I should do the same thing with my friends and my family members that I trust and love and with the people that work with me. And I think one of the biggest problems we have in life, John, 
is that people don't hold each other accountable. Iron is meant to sharpen iron. Everybody just wants to have a pillow fight. Hmm. I think that it's an act of selfishness because I don't want to be uncomfortable and it's an act of cruelty because it leaves them in a state of disrepair. Well, I think this next quote ties right into it, but I'm going to read it anyway, Pat. The key (laughs) ingredient to building trust is not time. It's actually courage. People will say, well, how long is it going to take for our leadership team when I'm working with them to become a team and to build trust with one another? And the answer is, well, we can do it in a matter of hours and days. It's not going to take months and years. They're like, how do you do that? Well, if we are willing to have the courage to be vulnerable with one another right now, and then we take them to exercises where we say, hey, everybody, tell us where you grew up and what was the most difficult challenge of your childhood, not your inner childhood, but just being a kid. And and the whole table will sit there and go one by one and tell their story in five minutes. And everybody in the room is just like, wow, we just told each other about things in our life that are vulnerable. Then we'll do something like the Myers-Briggs and people will say, yep, this is my personality type. I'm good at this. I'm pretty bad at this. Mm. And they say, you can call me on it. (laughs) Within hours of doing that, people are starting to have conversations that are completely different and their trust is being built up. But when people don't have the courage to be vulnerable, to put themselves out there, to disagree and to be human, trust is squelched. So that's what that one means. When a guy writes 11 books and gives 10,000 talks, there's quite a bit of quotables to pull from. So I have like 17 more in front of me. I'm going to choose one of these. (laughs) Because for me, Pat, meetings, whether it's meetings with my four kids and my wife, my parents, my team, when I'm speaking at events, meetings matter. And so I I want you to speak to uh, what this quote means. Here it is. One of the best ways for leaders to raise the level of healthy conflict on a team is by mining for conflict during meetings. You're sitting in that meeting and you're, you're, you're talking about something. And this could happen in a family too, although you, it has to be in a trusting environment. Um, I'm, what I'm saying is if you're at Thanksgiving and you have relatives that you just don't know very well, right. you don't necessarily do it the same way, although it's, it's still a great way to, to build love. But if you're sitting in a meeting <laughs> and you see people that don't agree and you know that they're, they're not putting it out there, your job is to say, hey, you guys, Mary, John, you guys don't agree on this decision, do you? And Mary and John are probably going to say, oh, no, we're fine. It's okay. It's okay. Like, no, no, no. I don't want you to be fine. I want to know what you think because we're going to benefit by hearing your opinions. And they finally start to speak up and they disagree. Then what they're going to do, John, and it's inevitable, they're going to feel guilty. They're going to sit there and they're going to feel guilty for disagreeing. And that's when you need to do something. After you mine for conflict, mm. you need to give people real-time permission to engage in it. And you need to interrupt them and say, hey, Mary and John, you know how you're disagreeing with this? Yeah, this is awesome. What you're doing is really good for the team, and it's going to make us better. So I love this. I appreciate this. Keep going. Even a Fortune 500 executive in his 50s or 60s or in her 50s or 60s is going to be relieved to be given permission and to, to get rid of the guilt they're feeling for disagreeing. Human beings are crazy in that they feel so bad for disagreeing with one another, and so they need to be reminded in real time, this disagreement is good. When my wife and I are arguing in the car and our kids are in the back seat, we will stop in the middle of it, and we will turn around and we'll say, you know we love each other, right? And they're like, we know, you guys are fine. <laughs> and I always tell them, mom is going to admit she's wrong, and we're going to forgive each other. <laughs> <laughs> How's that working but for you, Pat? about it is, is We have to remind people in the midst of it, don't feel bad about this disagreement. It's actually good. Pat, we live in a society right now that is so negative. There's a wild uptick in anxiety, in depression. Cigna has referred to another aspect as the the epidemic of loneliness. 46% of people identify as being lonely. 
at the most connected, seemingly digital time in the history of the world, we feel like we're all by ourselves. What are you seeing the best individuals, the best leaders, the best organizations do to push back against all these things that seem so broken? Well, I think the the, the technology is the is is the issue. We we say in spite of that we're we're like that, and it's actually not in spite of our technology that we're we're lonely. It's because of it, because we think we're connected, because we're we're shooting back and forth coded information to one another. But the human being was never meant to be relegated to a set of characters or emojis or n- letters and numbers. We, we have to see each other and touch each other and, and see the pain in each other and the joy and experience those moments. And, and when we think we're doing it by in texting or Instagram or whatever the heck else people are using, we have a false sense of connectedness. Mm. In fact, it's worse than that. Because we, when we do it that way, we are presenting each other in, in very disingenuous ways. The problem with all that is that we tend to put ourselves out there as being happy, even when we're not. And therefore, every kid thinks I'm the only unhappy one. And every parent thinks, well, every other family, family is perfect. You know, I really think we should have a year where everybody sends out Christmas letters <laughs> that say, let me tell you about my saddest moments of the year and what our family has done that's been really bad and how we're okay, but you need to know that we yes. had a terrible vacation. Once my, I, I was really mean to my husband and my kids really, they got in trouble once for something. <laughs> because we present ourselves, it's just ridiculous, and then we wonder why we feel so bad. I tell you what, John, here's one of the biggest things I'm learning. The companies that make all, these, all this technology are actually not letting, a lot of their employees are not letting their kids use it. That's fascinating. That to me makes me angry because it's the equivalent of, it feels like the equivalent of drug dealers who don't use drugs. Now, I, I salute them in not using drugs. Stop trying to get other people to use something that hurts them. You know how many kids have been violent to their parents or threatened suicide because they've had their phones taken away? Right. There are actually kids who have killed their parents for taking away their phones. And that shows you that there is an addiction to this. It's far more than just the harmless Facebooking. It's that we are allowing our children and, our, and adults to be addicted. I will tell you this, and I'm not saying it out of self-righteousness. Partly it's out of ADD. I'm not on any social media. I mean, I, I have an email and my, I have text and I don't use it very much because my fingers are fat and I'd rather talk to people <laughs> on the phone. My kids are like, stop calling me. And I'm like, this is how I do it. But the less I do on online, the less I'm surfing the internet, the less I'm reading news 24 hours a day, the happier I am. Maybe that's the challenge from this podcast interview is put the phone down, flip it upside down, maybe even be bold enough to turn the thing off and engage with the individual, the nature, the creation right in front of you. Right. And call somebody to talk. I mean, we think it's efficient to have four conversations at once, texting or an email, and there are four shallow conversations versus right. one deep one. So, by the way, I, you know, John, I try to go to mass most days. Uh, so, so that means I wake up, and if I get to mass in the morning, I sit there for 35 minutes in silence and prayer. And every time I'm like, how do I, how do I survive when I don't do this? Mm-hmm. I probably need to do it every three hours to, to really keep sane. Well, I hear the church bells ringing in the background. So, uh, so go. get your khaki pants on, tuck the shirt in, and here we go. Pat, we have <laughs> seven questions that we guide every guest through. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. 
Oh, cool. Astronauts, artists, and great thought leaders like yourself, great servants, Pat, like yourself, have been asked these questions. So question number one, you may have already given the answer earlier, but here we go again. What is the best book you have ever read? It probably is Be Healed by Bob Schutz. I don't include the Bible because the Bible is a series of books and it's inspired. It's different. I don't, To call that a book is – so I think that's probably it. And my favorite fiction book, just to throw that out there, is there's a writer named Dean Koontz who wrote a series of books about a character named Odd Thomas. Yes. And, and have you read that? I have, and I love Dean. He's a crazy man. I've never met him personally, but his writing is crazy and he fascinating. Is, it is. He's hysterical. He's very deep. I, I can read it again and again. Dean Koontz is one of the best writers of our time, I'm convinced. Awesome. So is Pat Lincioni. Question number two. Oh. <laughs> What's one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a child growing up in the Oklahoma of California that you <laughs> wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, um, wow, it's interesting. Probably, though it came from my brokenness, I, I think I was a little more determined then. Wow. And and I could I could kind of overcome obstacles. I was doing it from a place of brokenness, but I wish I could I could take that and have it now without the brokenness. So I would say it's that. But other than that, I would say I'm, I, I like who I am today better than I was then. What a great thing to say about yourself. I was really, I was pretty anxious. I don't think most of our listeners, and I don't think most, most of our guests would be able to say that, they, that they really love themselves as much today as they did their, their life when they were a child. I think most of us prefer what it was like as a kid growing up and climbing trees. Yeah, maybe that's the blessing in all this and in, in the woundedness is that when you heal as you get older, you can actually love. That's why when you meet somebody who's 85 and they're like, I'm so happy. Yeah. And, you know, those of us are like, you are, but you're, you're crooked in your nose and your, in your bones and you look like you're. But if you learn to know the love you have for yourself and that God has for you and for others, you can be happy even when it's hard to get up. My, my grandmother is 98. She has lost her spouse. She has lost almost every single one of her friends, certainly lost her mom and dad and two sisters. And I recently asked her, what was the best time in her life? You know, in the 40s when your husband came back from the Navy and like all these other great milestones. And she said, today, which is oh. such an awesome way to go through life. It's so, uh, Isn't that amazing? Caddy Kilkerman, she's an amazing, amazing That's individual. Awesome. Wow. Pat, if your home caught fire, your bride, your four kids, and uh, any animals you may have are out of the house, and you have an opportunity to run back in that home and grab one item— What's that one item, that one thing that you would come safely back out with? It, ha it would have to be something with sentimental value. It would probably be my uh, picture of my pictures of my family because I don't really can't think of anything else I value. Hmm. I mean, physical things I just don't value. I suppose if, if I had all my money tied up in bonds or something that was in a safe, I'd probably want to get those out because you know <laughs> you need that to live. But but in terms of in terms of stuff. I guess it would just be photographs or maybe my computer because it has photographs on it, but that's about it. Sometimes people bring up like an heirloom from your grandmother that she gave you in Bakersfield from the old farm. And sometimes it's stuff that is worth a couple pennies. And yet it's the one thing that people come back out with. It's pretty cool how uh, it's the little things that aren't when it comes down to it. Yeah, you know what's interesting? And I don't, I don't mean this to be like, maybe this is a, there's something wrong with me in this regard, but I don't really have any sentimental attachments to anything. Yeah. But I wish I, I mean, I totally think it's cool when people say, look at my grand, my grandfather carved this and yeah. that's good. 
I just, I think my Myers-Briggs type, I don't appreciate stuff very well. Like I'm not a very physical person, like a tangible person. And so like we moved out of two houses. One of my, my wife's friends cried when we moved out of one of our houses and my wife and I didn't. She was like, <laughs> I'm going to be so sad. And we're like, no, we're fine. <laughs> but if you could take a day off, which you I think have deserved, if you, if you could take a day off and go to a beach, sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and be next to anybody, anybody at all, living or dead, who would you want to spend a day with on that beach? Well, it'd be my wife. Wow. I mean, which is a very boring but true answer. We've been married 27 years and I'm 54, so we've been married half my life. And in the last two years, in the last two months, I am more excited to be with her than I ever have. And I w- it would be her. And if you said, well, Pat, um, here's the Queen of England coming along, I would say, no, I'm fine. I re- and I, I don't say that like, oh, what a great guy. I love my wife, and I would not want to sit on a bench with anybody else. Now, if you said it, was, it couldn't be my wife or my kids, might be you, John. <laughs> we can make that happen. Free I mean, I know charge, that sounds man. crazy, but when I, when I met you for the first time recently, well, here's what it, it would be you, and then I'd call my wife and my kids over, and I'd want them to talk to you. <laughs> Uh, hey, next time I'm in your town, it's on, and I'm looking That's forward right. to it already. Because, uh, and by the way, I don't say that lightly. Like, I, I, just I believe if, you. If I you appreciate are, it. Because if somebody said, "Well, he just told the guy he was on the podcast with," oh my gosh, when you told your story, I've told that story so many times, and it had such a deep impact on me that you know I can't wait for a time where we get to be together. Thank you. you, you your administrative assistant was in a moment ago, and she and I were talking. Apparently, about a month ago, she got married, and yes. then had. 16 years ago tomorrow, my wife and I have been married. We had lunch together today. And then there's you. You've had two and a half decades of, of marriage together. What would you say to a couple who are not choosing to sit on that bench together? So this isn't really related to the Live Inspired 7, but I think it's related to many of us in relationships today. How do we opt in to an awesome relationship, an awesome partnership, an awesome marriage for the long term? How do we do that daily long term? So a, a guy named Daniel Harkavy, who's a, who's a life coach, he was a friend of mine, and he was talking to me one day, and I was complaining about my wife. This was probably 10 years ago or more. And he said, you know, Pat, have you ever considered that the purpose of marriage is not to make you happy, but to make you holy? And I was like, oh, wow. Which isn't to say, like, marriage is miserable. What it means is <laughs> the purpose of being married is to make me a better person and to help her become a better person. And, and that was really important. And as a result of taking that stance, and frankly, being inspired by my own wife, who, who is so amazing this way, um, and wasn't always, I mean, it's not like we, we, we were, got right. married and understood this, but th- now because we are here to, for one another, not for ourselves in one another, it's made us even happier. So a, a good friend of mine is named Matt Marr. He's a singer. So, but he said recently, I heard him say, God's yoke is easy and his burden is light, Jesus is. And he said, but see, people go burden. It's like, no, you're not burdened by something. You're burdened for something. So when I'm burdened for my wife, that's awesome. But I think I used to think of it as like, well, this is a burden by my wife. Like Mm -hmm. I have to do this. I don't get to do what I want. And so that's kind of changed. And I would say, hey, the reason why why a man wears a tuxedo that's black when they get married, they don't all do it. It's because it's a symbol of dying to yourself for her. Mm. And that is Cool. That is cool. We need to hear that a little bit more frequently. We got a, just a, a three more questions yet for oh, Pat. Okay, let's go. Pat, what's the best advice you've ever received? It was probably the purpose of marriage and life is to become holy, not happy. Mm-hmm. That's what I said before. It's like, wow, that changes everything. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? I would say go back and find out what your wounds are so that you can heal from them now and stop playing out 
playing them out in, the, in your life and doing things that are not actually good for you, but are to avoid dealing with those wounds. So, so seek healing early in your life so that you don't have to uh, act on them. Final question for Pat Lincioni. Pat, it has been said that all great people, and I get to hang out with one right now, all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He was imperfect, but strove for humility and trusted Jesus. (laughs) Pat was imperfect, no doubt, like we all are, but he did strive for humility and did it incredibly successfully and believed with his heart of hearts in Jesus Christ. Pat, I want to thank you for your work, your words, your time today, and the impact that you have. And I, I just hope that any listener gets something out of it that's helpful, whether they're in the same place as me or they're in a different place in life. That's all great. And I, I just pray for all of them and for you, John. And I appreciate this time and um, can't wait to see you sometime soon. Well, one of our favorite guests was a guy named Matt Marr. He was on our podcast. I don't remember no the episode by name. But I love Matt. So what song from Matt Marr would you like to have us take us back to the bumper? You know, my favorite Matt Marr song is Love Will Keep Us Together. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt Marr is going to return right now into studio and play for us. Love will hold us together. My friends, I want to thank you for tuning in this time. That was Pat Lencioni. I am John O'Leary. Coming up is Matt Marr, and this is your day. Live Inspired. Friends, thank you so much for listening to today's Live Inspire podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com with your feedback, maybe your guest suggestions for future shows, stories on how this podcast has helped you live more inspired, or questions that you have for me. Again, send that email to me at podcast at johnolearyinspires.com. I can't wait to share with you the next episode.